Good morning to you all. Welcome to Convocation this morning. My name is John Ross Bushert. I'm a professor of physics. And I'm also the director of the Maple Scholars Program. And that's what this convocation is about this morning. Um, Maple Scholars is a, a summer program, a scholarly work, uh, sort of a community of professors and students working on a variety of projects for about eight weeks. And uh, just want to talk some more about the details of this. This is something that any of you would be eligible for. It's open to all students. And uh, you apply about now, actually. In fact, the due date is coming up in about a week. So you just barely have time to get going on this. Um, the, uh, the process, as I say, begins now. It actually started in the fall with professors uh, thinking about their, their own interests and, and research and scholarly work that they're doing and putting together proposals and eventually those are, are sort of filtered down and, and put together in a, a group that's up on a website I'll show you in a little bit. And uh, there, there are 12 of them for this coming year. And those are put up and then students can apply. And uh, the, uh, after the application our applications are all in, then uh, the professors choose who they want and the program starts in June and goes for about eight weeks. So June and July roughly is what it, what it covers. It's a whole variety of projects. You'll see that in a little bit when we see some of them, but uh, x-ray diffraction work, uh, writing and producing a play. We had three students do that some years ago. Uh, researching Mennonite youth ministry, uh, studying a wetland for, uh, for processing wastewater, uh, a lot of different things. It's not just individual projects. The students are encouraged to uh, interact a lot during the summer. And we try to build something of a community between the different students, but, uh, but with professors as well. So the students are living together all summer long. The uh, men are in one group and women in another, one of the small group housing units. And so we, we try to encourage them to uh, do all kinds of things, do whatever it is students do in the evening together and hope that interesting conversations are happening that, uh, that connect uh, research and, and, uh, and scholarly work in a variety of disciplines. We work at that in, a, in addition, in, in a more explicit way, uh, during uh, the Friday morning colloquiums. So every week, at the end of that week, you gather together Friday morning and students take turns presenting their work for each other. And that's an exciting time. Uh, the uh, students have to think a little bit ahead on Thursday, okay, what have I got to present that I can tell about to, to the rest of the group. And sometimes uh, you, you get together and you say, well, we tried doing this and it didn't work. And that's what you report that week. And other times you have something more exciting to, to show or to demonstrate or something new that you've discovered. Even more interesting than that, though, is the interdisciplinary uh, nature of that group. In the first place, when students are presenting, they're presenting, in a sense, to a group like this. Uh, it's, it's a collection of people from a variety of disciplines. And so when you're presenting, you have to take that into account. You have to 
choose your words and your descriptions and your explanations such that you, you hope a wide variety of people will, will understand and follow what you're doing. That's a challenge and a, and, a, and a good skill to learn. But there's also then an interesting time of question and answer when people from other disciplines can ask uh, interesting questions about the work that you're doing. Um, Professor of Bible and Religion Paul Keim is, is probably the, uh, the best example of this. He is uh, sort of famous in these meetings for asking interesting questions about language use. So uh, uh, in, in the midst of one of these discussions, a, a he will pick out a particular word that some scientist is using. Uh, or another thing he's done is, is picked out the way that scientists use diagrams and asks, what do those diagrams really mean? And uh, we sometimes have a hard time answering, uh, and it, it, it makes for an interesting conversation. So those have been good times. Uh, that's a good aspect of the program. We encourage students, uh, when their own project is not particularly fruitful on one afternoon, you're waiting on something and you don't have much to do, to go and visit another project and see what somebody else is doing and, and maybe contribute. So we, we're trying to encourage interaction trying to work at the interdisciplinary nature of this kind of thing. Um, the, uh, the work often continues. Many professors continue their research during the year. So at the end of Maple Scholars, uh, those same students may carry on, or maybe some other students would be added to the group and the research would carry on, necessarily at a slower pace. During the summer, it's full time. Students are working at it full time. The professor is there much of the time and things move along. During the year, uh, we're all involved in classes, and so it works at a, a very different pace. But then students often go on and give presentations at uh, various events. Uh, this, I guess, could be considered one of them, since we're going to have a couple of examples here at the end uh, from this last summer. It also ends with a nice banquet. Uh, we uh, invite family and friends and everyone to come around and see uh, the work that students have done, and so everybody gives a a poster or a presentation of some kind. Um, so if you're interested in this, uh, I would encourage you to apply. Let's take a look at, uh, at what's available. So there are 12 projects uh, up for this summer. You'll learn more about the, uh, the first one there in just a little bit. But uh, one that's been going on for, for some time, uh, Professor of Mathematics David Hausman has been studying fair allocation for many, many years. Uh, interesting subject, uh, one we really all could relate to. Uh, so when you have a, an estate that needs to be divided up among five children and they have different ideas about what things are valuable and what things aren't valuable, how do you divide that up in a fair way? Uh, like a good mathematician, he wants to define fair in a very rigorous mathematical way, and he does so. comes up with uh, three or four or five different definitions of fairness and then finds algorithms that people can use to divide up things fairly. That's his project. It's been very interesting. Um, been going on for many years. Uh, Kent Palmer, a new professor of informatics. This is a kind of a new discipline, and the pedagogy is not very well established, and he's interested in finding out what people are teaching in informatics courses and uh, relating those to what he's teaching and what's good practice and, and that sort of thing. Carl Helrich has been studying membrane biophysics uh, for a long time here at Goshen College. 
membranes are the barriers that you have. Uh, they, they form the cell wall uh, in all kinds of cells. And he's been studying um, the action of channels in those membranes and the dynamics of cholesterol super lattices in those uh, membranes. And I better not keep trying to talk much further on this, or I'm going to say something that's totally wrong. But anyhow, it's, it's an interesting project mixing physics and biology. Uh, Carl puts a lot of physics into it in modeling. And then he has some experimental work as well that uh, he tries to connect it with. Andy Ammons has been studying bees, in particular the effect of alcohol on bees. It's a kind of a model for the effect of alcohol on humans, trying to study the effects and what particular genetic uh, elements are involved in tolerance and in hangovers and other such things, trying to understand the physiology of that through the model of honeybees. And he has a, uh, developed a uh, a way of measuring this and uh, doing some experimental work and is also studying the genetics at the same time and relating the two. Jan Bender-Stetler has been uh, involved in researching in Tanzania for many, many years, has collected a whole lot of materials and would like to put these together into a kind of digital library and make this available for uh, the people of Tanzania and others uh, it needs to be available both in their original language and perhaps in, in English or other languages, but so it needs to be, uh, it, it's, a, it's a tricky kind of library she's trying to put together to make this both available as well as make it possible for Tanzanians themselves to keep adding and contributing to this so that it could become a, uh, a resource, an ongoing resource. Um, John Blosser has an art project, uh, would like to do some explorations uh, of surface and scale. I was complaining a moment ago, this one looked way too vague to me. I can't tell what he's really talking about here, but uh, uh, you'll have to read it and, and see if you can figure out what really, he, I think his idea really is to let a student uh, give more focus to what the project becomes. There are cases where the student is really the initiator on the project. Most of the time, it's the professor. Jim Miller has been studying membrane transport for a long time. This is somewhat related to what Carl was doing, but he measures the, the bursting of red blood cells by uh, looking at the genetics, what kinds of transport factors they have, put them in certain solutions, and they absorb things because the transporters transport them into the cell. The cell swells and bursts, and you can measure the speed of that process and uh, learn something about which transporters are present to be. Um. So here's uh, Paul Keim studying Muslim Mennonite relations. This is a kind of a, a new idea. Apparently we've had interactions between Muslims and Mennonites for some time, but uh, nobody's really studied this in any detail, so it's time to do so. Um, Jewel Lehman, uh, studying overweight children. This, of course, is a, a very current uh, concern across the country, and uh, she would like to do some research locally here with several agencies and, uh, and see what can, be, uh, what can be done. Paul Meyer-Reimer, uh, studying x-rays, uh, using x-rays to study calcite growth. He's built a sample cell and needs to carry on some, uh, some more investigations of that, trying to understand how it is that uh, um, 
seashells are able to grow uh, a very special material. Empower by Steve Thomas. This is uh, uh, ideas of studying uh, different activities that uh, elementary school children could be encouraged to do during recess that would reduce bullying and uh, improve uh, cooperation and that sort of thing. Uh, interesting project. There's some funding from Lilly that uh, is encouraging this. Um, just to give you an idea of how to go about this, if you're interested in one of these projects, you can go to the uh, Maple Scholars page. If we'll bring up uh, the Goshen College page, I'll show you how to get there. You go to the Goshen College page, the web page, and then uh, under Academics. Let's see if we can find it here in a minute. In a minute, you're going to hear a couple of examples. But here's the Goshen College page. And if you go under Academics, and then over on the right, Honors and Research, the Maple Scholars Program. That gets you to the website, and there's information on how to apply, and much more detail on each of these projects. And if you're interested in them, you should also be sure and talk with the professor. It always has to begin with that kind of contact back and forth. But for more uh, of a, uh, a direct connection to this, uh, we have uh, two examples of uh, projects that were going this last summer. We're going to begin with uh, Chelsea Kaufman, um, who worked on a project with Professor of English, Jessica Baldanzi. So Chelsea will come and give us what she did. Okay, so yes, this summer I worked with Pro Professor Jessica Baldanzi collecting stories of stillbirth. Um, I helped transcribe interviews, um, but then we also extended the project to examine visual representations of grief from pregnancy loss. Uh, we couldn't keep it focused exactly on stillbirth because um, pregnancy loss and stillbirth are still very societally taboo subjects. Um, People really don't like talking about death, and people especially do not like talking about the death of children because um, in children we have this idea of the continuity of life, and it's really troubling when that continuity is broken. Um, so yeah, we went to examine these visual representations and with the idea that images might be able to convey more than words alone. Um, and as an English and an art major, it's kind of my specialty, that blending of words and images. So we used Frida Kahlo as an example of a woman who experienced pregnancy loss, but who also described that loss through her paintings. And maybe through studying this, we tried to map a visual vocabulary about the grieving process from pregnancy loss. Uh, pregnancy loss is a lot more common than people think. Um, one in every 160 pregnancies is stillborn, and about 25% of confirmed conceptions are miscarried. Um, but still, many women who have experienced pregnancy loss feel isolated and lonely because they don't have uh, opportunities to talk about and kind of um, process their grief. Um, and even though every woman experiences grief differently, um, there are certain commonalities that are traditionally described as the stages of grief. And so I took these stages of grief and 
applied them to Kahlo's entire body of work. I had large sheets of butcher paper with tiny images of each of her paintings and started to connect parallels and write notes and see what exactly was happening through her life chronologically as she um, went through her grieving process. Um, a brief background on Frida. When she was 18, she was the victim of a terrible bus accident. She was pierced through the abdomen with an iron handrail and had a very long, gruesome recovery process. Um, through her life, she suffered three miscarriages, um, one in 1929, right after her marriage to Diego Rivera, um, her second in 1932, when she was visiting Detroit, and the, her third in 1936, back in Mexico. Um, she represents a very significant figure because she's one of the few and probably the first female artist to depict pregnancy loss in her work. Um, and so through studying her work, I found four major themes that fit this chronological framework. Um, here, the use of baby imagery, literally pictures of babies in her paintings. Uh, use of space, that's a one of the elements of art, you talk about um, like the size of objects in relation to other objects or to the picture plane as a whole. Um, this floating Frida effect, which I'll get to in a minute, and then the appearance of vines or cords, just very thin lines in her paintings. Uh, first of all, baby imagery. Um, it's the first and most literal theme. Uh, the babies could reflect feelings of denial and the loss or yearning for her lost baby. Um, I also thought that it could provide an opportunity for Frida Kahlo to kind of circumvent her loss and imagine a world in which um, her baby had not died. Um, it also represents feelings to resuscitate the baby. And these paintings roughly coincide with her miscarriages, suggesting that Kahlo may have used the paintings as an attempt to kind of very, her kind of first attempt to process this event and to kind of wrap her head around it. Uh, later, the baby imagery shifts into pet imagery. Um, since Kahlo didn't have any children of her own, she often used animals to kind of replace that space in her life. Uh, second, her use of space. There are two types of space that are very common in her work. This sort of empty, vacant space, and then very claustrophobic space. And both show her process and her struggle with um, numbness and shock, which is again one of the stages of grief. Uh, with the empty space, you can see it's very sparse. Kahlo doesn't connect with the rest of the world. She feels detached, listless, you can almost feel her isolation from the rest of her, the world um, because of her grief. And then later on, this space morphs into more claustrophobic, um, richly detailed patterned backgrounds, um, which has this effect of forcing Kahlo out at the viewer um, in a very sudden sort of motion, very much like shock. Um, you can see it as Kahlo was thrown into this situation of pregnancy loss. Um, so then she in turn throws herself out at the viewer. Um, these two stages represented the largest um, span of time in her career, um, almost 17 years. Some of the other themes are very short, like the baby imagery takes place right around her episodes of miscarriage. Um, but this, it was a long drawn out process dealing with this numbness and shock.
Uh, next, the floating Frida effect. Here we go. Um, it's this really odd thing. In a number of her paintings, it doesn't actually look like she's connected to the ground. She's just floating in space among all the other objects. Um, it could show depression and despair. She doesn't feel a part of the rest of the world. She just kind of exists among everything else. Um, here again, yes, she is, it looks like she's kind of on the floor, but in some of her other figures, their feet are very solidly attached. There are shadows around the bottom of the foot to show that it's connected. But when she paints herself, it's almost always floating. And then finally, I think this is the most interesting theme personally, because it follows a fairly strict chronological sequence. Um, the others are more of a generalized pattern, but this one, if you look at the dates, it's strictly chronological. Um, through my research, I determined that these lines correspond to Kahlo's process of finding resolution, finally, from her process of grief. Um, at first, the lines are not very connected. They float in space. Here, the objects are tied with bows, things that are very easily undone. Um, there's this attempt to go out and connect and to reach, but it's just not quite there. Eventually, they start actually connecting to Kahlo's figure, but they're a little more violent. Um, here, they're taut and disappear off the edge of the picture plane, almost like they're strangling her. Um, they also appear as blood vessels, which have very direct con connotations to umbilical cords. Um, here, it's, the lines now start to connect a bit more, um, connect a bit more solidly, but also a little less violently. Here, it connects the two Fridas, but there isn't this sense of strangling in them. And then they connect even more closely here as ribbons in her hair, and then as her hair itself. And then finally, we have this, this really incredible painting where the lines are her figure. Um, in this portrait, the roots come from Kahlo's womb and plant themselves in the rest of the world. Now, if we connect the roots as kind of the umbilical cords from earlier, this insinuates that Kahlo is now giving birth to the earth itself. So over time, there is this process of resolution, of connecting back to the rest of the world. Now, um, often there are some issues with practical application for research of this nature, of art history in general. Um, so what, what would somebody do with research like this? Um, first of all, since there is not much publicity about pregnancy loss, the first step is to start to end the silence, to bring it out in the open, to kind of shed these societal taboos around the death of children. Um, it also validates an individual woman's experience. Um, we're working to understand this woman's grief. It validates her grief. It's not, oh, you can just have another baby. The babies that you lost were important. And then finally, to kind of map a visual vocabulary that can help women who have experienced pregnancy loss themselves, to help them deal with their own grief through images. Even if they aren't artists, they can look at her work and say, oh, this is how one woman understood her grief through art. Maybe I can do the same. So yeah, that's how I spent my summer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Chelsea. Uh, now for something completely different. 
I have a couple students that worked with me this last summer on a project uh, we called Musician Makers. So um, Ben Taves and Zach Yorty are going to explain this and get some of you to participate. So. All right, well, as John said, I'm Ben Taves, and this is Zach Yorty, and we worked on The Musician Maker this summer. Um, this is a new project, just started last spring, more or less, and the idea is that acoustic instruments are hard to play. Um, that's just how it is. There are basically two reasons. First of all, it takes years of training to learn how to play a new instrument, and second, they're just awkward positions. For instance, with the violin, you have to keep your hands up in this weird spot on this board with, you know, you have to know exactly where all the notes are, and you have to know exactly how to hold the bow to get just the right sound. And, you know, you, you can master these things if you start when you're young enough. So if you're 5, 10, maybe 15 years old, you can learn to play these instruments. But what if you're like 20, 30, 50 years old? There are a lot of people that just, they really like music, but they can't really produce it. Um, there are just too many things about music that make it too hard to learn. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate, but that's kind of what we were trying to get around. What, what we thought was, what if we could make something that would just be like a little computer program and some very simple instruments, and somebody could come in basically off the street and pick up one of your instruments and you could kind of show them how to work it in about five minutes, and then they could play a song. Um, you know, the computer would play a song kind of along with them, and, and nothing would sound bad. You know, it's not going to sound like Beethoven or anything, um, but it's not going to sound bad. It's going to be enjoyable, it'll be fun, it'll be like a game. Um, and so that was kind of what we were shooting for, and I think now we're going to start out by showing you kind of where we ended up, and then we'll go back and explain what's going on. That's not very impressive, I guess, because we've been working with this all summer, and that song in particular is about the oldest thing that we've been working with. So, you know, it doesn't really prove anything that we can do it, so in a little bit we're going to pull some of you up here and we'll try and do the same thing. But before we do, I want to try to explain a little bit what's going on here. Um, we have three instruments, and each of the instruments has uh, some chords attached to it. So with these chords, um, we have signals that are going from the instruments into the sensor. Um, and our sensor here converts those signals into something that a computer can use. And then our computer takes that information and turns it into a musical note. So what we've got here is a template for the song that we actually write out. And those of you who are in music classes or have taken music theory might recognize the music theory notation at the bottom. But what we're able to do is specify kind of a key, a tempo for the song, a chord duration, and then the chords in music theory notation. And so the computer takes those signals and turns it into a note by constraining the notes to the notes in the chord. 
So for example, a C chord, a C major chord has the notes C, E, and G. And so if that were the chord that we're playing at that moment, that, those would be the only notes that you could play using, uh, using the instrument. So what we have here are three instruments. Uh, the first one is called the oblow, and this is a sort of wind instrument. And so it has uh, two sort of pieces, the mouthpiece where you can blow, and then a piece that twists on the bottom to control the pitch. So as I blow, there's a breath sensor that figures out how hard I'm blowing, and that controls the volume. And then I can also twist on the bottom to change the pitch. The second instrument we have is a baronium, and that's this right here. It's two force sensors, and so using the information from those force sensors, we can figure out what note I'm playing and how hard I'm playing it. So as I push on this bar, the harder I press, the louder the note is. And then as I move my finger along the bar, the note changes. The last instrument we built is called the pluck and play, and it's a sort of string-based instrument. Um, it's kind of like a string bass. We have, again, two different uh, operations. There's a little pluck sensor here, so I can pluck, and that will make the note. And then as I move my hand up and down, um, there's another force sensor that finds out kind of what note I'm playing. So now that you've seen what's going on, we need three volunteers. We got Aaron back there, I saw Stefan, and Daniel, I guess. The plan is that we're going to put all three of you together. You're going to play the whole song, which is significantly longer. So if you need to take a breath, go ahead. <laughs> um, but we're, the hope is that this will at least sound kind of enjoyable, but mostly be fun for you guys. Okay, so here we go. And go.
issues that we still have to iron out. Uh, <laughs> whoever, whoever works on the next Maple Scholars Project can kind of work on ironing out those technical issues. Um, yeah, I think that's what we've got. That's all. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>